I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. Chapter 6, beginning at verse 14, where Paul writes, Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship is there between light and darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belair? Or what does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch nothing unclean. Then I will welcome you, and I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and of spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, we give you thanks for your holy word and for this privilege of studying it together. And God, as I stand before these, your people, this is your church. I pray that this would be your message and not my own. Through the name of Jesus, who is the Christ, amen. Paul's letter to the church at Corinth takes an interesting turn here. As a matter of fact, scholars are a little confused at times of why does this seem to be inserted here? Paul had been talking with the church at Corinth. His relationship had been strained for a while. Now there's reconciliation and healing. And in the midst of that, there's this pause, this insert beginning at chapter 6, verse 14, where Paul begins to caution the church and encourage the church not to get drawn into the darkness, not to get absorbed into the world, not to forget our identity or the church's identity as the body of Christ, the temple of the living God. And a contrast is set up. A contrast between righteousness and lawlessness. A contrast between light and darkness. A contrast between Christ and Belair, or Belial, depending on which translation of the Bible you have. And that was a name that was used for Satan. So in other words, a contrast between Christ and Satan. Paul reminds the church, we are called to be the temple of God. He reminds us of the covenant that God made with us. I will be your God, God said, and you will be my people. It's the covenant relationship that God established with Abraham throughout the Old Testament. Jesus reaffirms and Paul now affirms. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. The church is called to be the temple of God. We together as the church are called to be the temple of God. You, wherever you are right now, you are called by God 
to be the temple of God. We're to be a place and a people with whom God dwells. God said, I will live in them. God's desire is to live in you and to live in me, to live in us and to walk among us. That's why I love the Greek word for church, which is ekklesia. That word actually means to be called out. We are a called out people. We're called to be a people of God. We're called to be different than the rest of our world. Not that we're holier than thou, but set apart by God to be the people of God, a witness for God, a people that witness to our community and calls our world to faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this contrast that Paul sets up does not mean that that we are called to separate ourselves from the world in the sense that we become isolated. No, actually, if you read the Gospels, Jesus is continually being criticized by the Pharisees and others for eating with tax collectors and sinners, for allowing a sinful woman, as the Scripture says, to, to wash his feet. He was constantly among the least, the last, the lost, the outcast, the sinners. The challenge that Paul is bringing is that we not be absorbed into it, that we be a witness to the world, not absorbed in the world. And so then Paul says in chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises that God is with us, that God will dwell in us, that God will walk among us, that God will be our God and we will be His people. Then he says, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and of spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God. Based on these promises, let us cleanse ourselves and make holiness perfect in the fear of God. That, that Greek word for cleanse is the Greek word katharizo. And when you read it, it, it's the word for cleanse, yes, to purify, to purge. It's a way of saying as we get started, as we now have these promises, one of the first things we do as Christians, one of the first things we do then as the church, one of the first things we do as disciples is to cleanse ourselves, to to ask God to come in and cleanse us, to purify us, to, to purge us. We're in this season of Lent. The color goes to purple. It's a reminder uh, of our repentance. It's a reminder of the royalty of God. But it's a reminder for us to prepare ourselves to, to seek to be those disciples that God is calling us to be. And Paul here is going, it's a reminder that your body is a temple of the Lord. So cleanse the temple. Just like Jesus cleansed the temple when He came into Jerusalem, now we're being told, cleanse our temple. Allow God to come in and flip over the tables that are in our hearts and in our lives and make sure that that we are the vessel that God is calling us to be. One of my favorite people in my ministry was... uh, 
a layperson at the church I had in Whittier, just outside of Cherokee, North Carolina, when I was in seminary. Nancy and I lived there, and, and Emerson Cathy was my lay leader of the church, and he was a, an amazing carpenter, a Finnish carpenter, and, and he and I just, we just hit it off. He was an elderly gentleman when I was there, and uh, actually had the privilege of going to do his funeral service. He had actually put it in his will with the family. Whenever I die, please ask Terry to come back. I was so honored because he was such a special person and he taught me so much about prayer. I've shared with some of you before, if, if we don't learn as clergy from our lay people who are spiritual giants, we are missing so much when God puts these people in our lives. And Emerson had the gift of prayer. His prayers were deep and they were incredible. But the other thing is, is he was one of those few people that if somebody asked him to pray for something, he would pray about it, but he would come up before they ever could see the answer and would go, God has revealed that your prayer has been answered and here's what's going to happen. And, and it was absolutely incredible, eerie, how he had this special connection with God. So one day we were working together, we were building something together, and, and I said, I want to talk to you about your prayer life. And he said, sure. And we were just having this great conversation, the hammers and nails and saws and working with wood. And I said, talk to me about how you have this gift of prayer where you get this assurance that God has answered a prayer before it ever comes out and he said well I think the secret to genuine prayer is before I start praying for whatever I've been asked to pray for I, I spend a day or two just asking God to, to purify me and to clean me up he said I, I tell God God I need you to wash up old Emerson love the way he referred to it that if you're going to use me as a vessel I want to be a clean vessel. So God, I ask that you would just clean me up and make me pure and holy and whatever needs to be dealt with, God, I pray you'd help me deal with it. And he goes, once I've asked God to clean up the bowl or the vessel, then God can use me to pray for others. When I read this scripture and it, it talks about cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and the spirit, I hear Emerson praying out, God, would you just clean up this old vessel? Would you just clean up this old vessel so you can use me somehow for your glory and your honor? Paul says, first of all, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and the spirit making holiness perfect in the fear of the Lord. Holiness. Now that's a scary word for most of us. When we think about being holy, we just go, not me, I am anything but holy. Well, we can't make ourselves holy. Holiness occurs by God's grace. And, and that's why Paul says, then since we have these promises that God is working in us and God is living in us and God will walk among us, God can make us holy, the Greek word hagios. It means to be consecrated, consecrated for God, allowing God to consecrate our lives. Think about what that would be like if we pray, God, I want you to consecrate me 
for your work, for your ministry, for your service. Let my life somehow reflect your glory and let my life be a reflection of you. It means to, to be holy, means to be consecrated, to be moral, to be sacred. But again, not by our own power and our own might. It's a gift from God. Since we have these promises, then we can call on God to make us holy, making holiness perfect. And that's epitaleo, which, which means that God can make us complete. God can finish that work within us. The song, Love Divine, O Love Excelling, Charles Wesley hymn, you know, it, it, it talks about finish then thy new creation, that God, God makes us perfect. It's not something we do, I'm perfect, but God perfects us by His grace. That when we're vulnerable and we open ourselves up and go, God, purge me, purify me, cleanse me, God, make me holy, consecrate me to be a vessel for you, then God can use us all out of the fear of the Lord. And that Greek word, phobos, it actually means reverence, respect, out of reverence for God, out of, out of respect for God, out of a sense of, a sense of awe for God. Shared with you before, one of my fears of the contemporary church, and I'm not meaning style of worship, I'm just meaning the church of today, is that we lose the sense of all, that sense of I am in the presence of God, that sense of I am humbled just to be in your presence, that sense of who am I to be in the presence of God, that fear, that, that all of God. Well, holiness, that's a challenging thing for us as we think about being disciples of Jesus Christ. We've been talking about during the season of Lent, what does it mean to be an apprentice of Jesus Christ? Last week we talked about you take a towel and take a knee and serve on behalf of Christ. But to be holy, the discipleship, to be an apprentice means to be holy as God is holy, but it's by His grace. Well, what does that even mean? We love to talk about Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that we can be forgiven. That's a gift that we receive. It's grace that we receive. But holiness is our reaction to it. Again, it's a gift of God's grace, but it's our response to this grace to seek to live a life that is holy, moral, sacred, consecrated to God. And how do we define what that looks like? Well, John Wesley talked about holiness as scriptural holiness. So there's a lot of conversation in our world today about social holiness or personal holiness. But then we tend to get called up in groups of trying to find, well, this is what holiness looks like. No, this is what holiness looks like. John Wesley's view was, well, actually, if you want to know what holiness looks like, go to the scriptures and see how does God define holiness. There's a little bit of arrogance, I think, upon the church today where we think everything is our decision. Wesley talked about scriptural holiness. How do we discern how God defines holiness? What does that look like? As a matter of fact, uh, Wesley was at a Methodist conference and was asked, 
What may we reasonably believe to be God's design in raising up preachers called Methodists? And his answer was to reform the nation, particularly the church, and I love that, to reform the nation, particularly the church, and spread scriptural holiness over the land. Henry Knight, Dr. Henry Knight, a Wesleyan scholar, says that Wesley believed that the Church of England, of which he was a part, which should be at the forefront of promoting scriptural holiness, had largely abdicated its responsibility and become accommodated itself to culture. Wesley believed that the Church of England, of which Wesley was a part, which should be at the forefront of promoting scriptural holiness, had largely abdicated its responsibility and become accommodated itself to, script, to the culture. And, and, and I think about where we are in our church and our world today, and I think, you know, Wesley would probably argue the same thing again. This was how Methodism started, how the United Methodist Church started. But perhaps we've abdicated our responsibility and have become accommodated itself, ourselves, into culture. Wesley firmly believed that the renewal of the church would, would come when we spread scriptural holiness. Maudwin Edwards, who was a British historian and theologian, shared that John Wesley declared, where holiness was not preached, the societies, in other words, the church, languished. So holiness. How do we become scripturally holiness, holy? How do we spread scriptural holiness around in our world? We, we love the concept, but the challenge is the cost and how, how do we surrender our lives to allow God to use us? I love the way Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2 verse 19. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the concept of scriptural holiness where we come to the point of going, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I, I seek to be that disciple of Christ. So how do we get there? Well, Paul told us the first thing you do is ask God to cleanse you. To cleanse us, to purify us, to make us clean in body and in spirit. Would you like a prayer to help you do that? Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139. Verses 23 and 24, and you'll hear David cry out to God, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. God, search me 
and know my heart. Cleanse me, purify me, make me holy. Wash up this vessel that I am today so that you can use me for your glory and your honor. Make me holy, not by my works, but God, by your amazing grace. During the season of Lent, especially in this season of Lent, the prayer of the church is, God, there's, if there's anything that's standing between you and myself, between me and someone else, God, cleanse me. If there's something that I'm doing in my life that doesn't reflect you living in me, you walking with me, as Paul says, then, then God, I pray you would bring it to Bring it to my attention, bring it to my face, place it before me. And God, I pray that you would forgive us and cleanse us, remove that. And then Paul says, make holiness perfect. Being a Christian is our identity. I think the church can transform the world and spread scriptural holiness when being a Christian, being a disciple of Christ becomes our identity and not just something that we do on Sundays or whenever we may be joining to worship and to share together the scripture that we're sharing right now. But being a Christian is our identity. Being a disciple is our identity. It's our being. It's our essence. It's our spiritual DNA. It's that which defines us. This is who I am. In other words, when our faith is no longer our religion, but it's our soul. It's our essence. In 1 Peter 1, 13, Peter writes, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourself. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when He's revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as He who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct, for it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Or Paul passionately pleads, in Romans chapter 12, which is his masterpiece writing of Romans, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then Paul writes to his apprentice Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, you can see Paul beginning to hand the baton over to Timothy. Paul says, let no one despise your youth but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. We're called to be holy, not holier than thou. That's a different story. Holy by God's grace, consecrated by God's grace, set apart 
by God's grace, called to be the church by God's grace, called to be the temple, Paul said in 2 Corinthians, called to be the temple where God lives in us and walks among us. That's who we're called to be. It's a tall order, but we're not asked to be holy on our own. It's by God's amazing grace. John Wesley called it sanctifying grace. God's grace that will walk with us and help us to be holy. But there is a response on our part. The challenge is, will we honestly pray, God, help me not to be conformed, but transformed. God, I want to present my body as a living sacrifice to you. To be crucified with Christ where we, we do, no, do not live, we no longer live, but Christ lives within us. To set an example for the believers in our speech. Our speech can give us away sometimes. I'm reminded when Peter was asked, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? No, I, I don't know what you're talking about. The second time, aren't you sure you're one of his disciples because your speech gives you away? Does our speech give us a way that we are disciples of Jesus Christ? The way we speak and live our lives, not only on Sunday morning, but when we're in the boardroom, when we're in the office, when we're at the ball field, when we're at lunch, when we're gathered together with a group of friends. Does our speech give us a way, our conduct how we live our lives? Does our conduct reveal that we're disciples? I mean, do we have to tell everybody we're a disciple or can people see it in the way we live our lives, the way we love our God and the way we express that love for our neighbor? Now set an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. So hear these words from Jude. It's one of those books that you may not read very often, but I invite you to turn to it. You can read the whole book pretty quickly because it's only one chapter. So here are these words where Jude says, Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, power and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen.